Let's open up with me to Mark chapter 12. No, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12. The lamb was slaughtered at twilight, according to the decree of God. As night fell, the family celebrating the Passover would come together to celebrate this Passover meal and remember their deliverance in the land of Egypt. The meal was divided into four parts, and after each one of these four parts, there would be a drinking of wine, much to the chagrin of our Southern Baptist friends. This meal was meant to be a remembrance of the Lord's deliverance, but also a looking forward to the Lord's coming deliverance in the ultimate sense. At a certain point in the meal, one of the children would come forward and he would ask to speak. And the table would go silent. And the child would approach the patriarch of the family and he would say, what is different about this night? What makes this night special. The patriarch would respond by reading Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9, which is basically the story of how Egypt, excuse me, the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, which we read about at length in Exodus chapter 12. And then he might go on to explain exactly how this deliverance was carried out. He would say something like, the Lord had sent many signs and wonders upon Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and the final plague was the death of the firstborn sons of the land, Egyptian and Jew alike. And then he would say the only way to escape the wrath of the Lord was to be hidden under the blood of the Lamb. Our text this morning has Jesus celebrating this same Passover meal with his disciples right before he goes to the cross to die. Jewish historian Josephus says that At this time in Jerusalem, the borders of the city would have been swollen with people coming in to celebrate Passover. There could have been upwards of two million people within the walls of Jerusalem. Not only that, there would have likely been upwards of 260,000 lambs and goats slaughtered for this Passover meal. In a time before the sewer system, the streets would literally run red with blood. And soon the blood of Jesus would also be spilled. What happened on the cross as Jesus goes and dies is a public spectacle. And Jesus' spectacular death changed all of human history. But before he went to the cross and died his spectacular public death, he ate dinner in a guest room with his disciples in private. But what happened in this room would mean everything for how his disciples will understand what happened on the cross. I've got three points for you this morning from the text. Point number one, Jesus is Lord of the Passover. Point number two, Jesus is forming a family. And point number three, Jesus is betrayed. Let's read the text, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, 
where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born at all. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray. Father, bring your word to life for us, even this morning. Amen. Point number one, Jesus is Lord of the Passover. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking verse by verse through the book of Mark. And what we've seen time and time again is the authority of Jesus put on full display. Jesus comes into contact with demons, and he's authoritative over them. Jesus comes into contact with sickness, he's authoritative over it. Jesus has battles and disputes with the religious leaders, Jesus is authoritative over them. No matter what it is, Jesus displays his authority from interpretations of the Bible to Sabbath. And in today's account, we see Jesus doing the same thing. He's showing his authority over the Passover. Now, the main way that we see that is the fact that he is actually reinterpreting the Passover. Now, reinterpret might be a funny word. I don't mean to say that the Jews misunderstood the Passover and that he was coming along to clarify their misunderstandings. I also don't mean that Jesus kind of had this postmodern, millennial, you know, like, here's what the Passover means for me. It's all about sitting back and eating popcorn and watching TV. No, not that. What I mean is that the Passover was always meant to point to something beyond that night in Egypt. It was always pointing to Jesus Christ. And he comes along and he says, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the lamb that that lamb has always been pointing to. During a typical celebration of the Passover meal, the head of the household would stand up and break the bread, the unleavened bread, and he would use it as a picture, a way to help the family members visualize what he's saying. And this is what he would say. He would say, this is the bread broken for our affliction." He would say, this is what our fathers ate in the wilderness. Every Jewish boy and girl growing up would have had the celebration of the Passover meal every single year 
and they would have known at this point during the meal, here's where grandpa or great-grandpa, or however you say that in you know, Hebrew, this is where he stands up and he breaks the bread. And so Jesus, as he's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, as he stands with bread in his hands, the disciples know what's coming. But he doesn't say, this is the bread of our affliction. Jesus says, this is the bread of my affliction. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now this comes from the book of John. Mark isn't full of details. He doesn't give you a lot of the, you know, the verbiage, the play-by-play action. But we know from John as well as from the book of Luke that Jesus sees this body, this bread as his body being broken for their sake. And here we see the bread's ultimate significance. The bread doesn't only represent the past, the suffering of God's people in the wilderness, but it also represents the suffering that Jesus will endure for the people of God. The bread being broken in two is a picture of what will happen to Jesus, but there's more. Now Jesus commands for a second time in his ministry that his people partake of his flesh, that they eat of his body. This is significant. Jesus is saying that this sacrifice that he's making, it's not just nebulous. It's not for anyone out there. It's only for those who actually partake of his body. Jesus is offering up his body for those who will repent and turn from their sin, but you must receive and partake of his body. But in order to do that, you have to realize that you are also broken. If you want to partake of Jesus' body that was broken on your behalf, you have to admit that you are broken. You must have a heart that towards God recognizes its own brokenness. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as basically put together? You think you pretty much got it under control? You think that if you died, God would probably have to let you into heaven. You're a basically good person. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The thing that God wants from us is not animals who have been killed and had their blood shed. He wants us to recognize that our blood must be shed because of our sins, that we are broken, that we're sinners. And if we can get to the point where we see ourselves as we truly are, as we see ourselves as God actually sees us, as broken, we can come to Jesus who was broken on our behalf and we can be made whole again. And if we're made whole, this will begin to affect our lives. If we say that we've been made whole by Jesus, our lives will begin to reflect that. At one point in time, we might have used our bodies for sexual perversion, but now our bodies will begin to be used to be made sexually pure. Sexually broken people become sexually whole people. Broken marriages can become new marriages and healthy marriages. 
I don't, I, don't, I don't know where you are this morning, but I promise you, you're not so broken that Jesus can't fix you. Your marriage is not so bad that it cannot be resurrected. The situation with your child that you're really worried about is not so desperate that Jesus can't make it whole. That battle with sin that you're fighting, that you think is all but lost, it doesn't have to be. But you have to see yourself as broken and in need of help in order to receive the healing that Jesus' broken body brings you. But returning to the meal, Jesus continues to explain the symbolic meaning of the meal as he picks up the cup of wine. After blessing the wine, Jesus tells the disciples that just as his body was broken, so too his blood must be spilled. Look at verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant. Excuse me, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, in case you don't know what a covenant means, that's not a word that we use very often. We use things like agreement. But a covenant is more than an agreement. We use words like promise, but a covenant is more than a promise. Here's a good, simple, pocket-sized definition of covenant for you to kind of take with you. A covenant is a relationship grounded in a promise. And Jesus says that's what he's instituting with his people. A relationship grounded in a promise. Blood and covenants were very tightly connected in the ancient world. It wasn't uncommon for a covenant to be described as being cut. So if one king and another king would get together and make a covenant agreement, it would be said that they cut a covenant with one another. But why did blood have to be involved? I mean, as a matter of fact, sometimes they would even kill an animal, cut his body in half, and then each part, each part of the each person who was a part of the covenant would walk through the bodies, the dead body of the animal, and say, May this and worse happen to me if I ever break the covenant. Why do they feel the need to do that? Well, it's because a covenant was a sacred oath. A covenant is a big deal. It's a very serious promise. To break a covenant is no light matter. Blood was saying, I recognize that if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, justice demands a verdict on my disobedience. Blood must be spilled. All throughout the scriptures, you see God entering into covenant relationships with his people. And then almost as soon as he does, you see them rebel against the covenant and be disobedient to the covenant, not really hold up their end of the covenant. Even as our Bibles begin, God enters into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve, and we all know what happened there. And in order for them to be covered, God killed an animal and clothed them with their skins. Blood had to be shed to cover Adam's sin. When I was a new Christian and I was trying to make sense of this whole Bible thing and this whole gospel thing, I never really could understand why, at least in the Old Testament, an animal would have to die in order to cover up the sin, in order to make a payment for the sin. I didn't understand it. It didn't seem like there was a mechanism in place like, why does that lamb's death get this guy off the hook for his sin? Right? That's a fair question to ask. 
But you keep reading to your New Testaments, and you see, well, that's not really how it was meant to work. God never said, well, this lamb is dead, therefore your sins are taken care of. God said, I've provided a way for you to be forgiven. Trust in the way that I've provided, and through your faith you will be forgiven. And that lamb, it was always pointing forward to something, to someone greater. Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. How does that lamb dying pay the price for my sins? Well, it doesn't. It says here that it never can. Because an animal's blood can't pay the price for a human sin. But Jesus comes along and he's both a human and a lamb. And as a human, he pays the price for human sin. But there's still another issue. You see, our sin, our our sin is eternal. The God that we sin against is an eternally good, holy, and righteous God. Our physical blood being shed here and now, our one-time death isn't sufficient to pay the eternal price for our sins. And that's why Jesus didn't have to just be man. He also had to be God. And Jesus Christ, as fully man, paid the price for our human sins. And as fully God, he paid that price eternally. All those who are found outside of Christ will go and suffer for their sins eternally in hell. But all those who partake of Christ, of his body broken, and of his blood shed, they don't have to endure that because he paid that eternal price. Now we get to go and we get to be with God forever in heaven. C.S. Lewis famously talked about Jesus as either being a liar or Lord or a lunatic. And I think that that's perfect for what's happening here with Jesus in this text. You see, if, if what he's saying isn't true, he's certainly a liar. If he's saying, really, guys, the, the Passover, it's really all about me. And if it's not, well, he's lying. Or he may be insane. You know, he comes and he says, actually, this thing that's symbolic, that's rooted in history, that has its roots, actually, it's all about me, some guy in the Middle East. Well, if, if that's not true, he's lying. Or he's crazy. Or he really is God. He really is the Lord. He really does understand the thing that this thing was always pointing to. He really does have the right to give this ceremony the fullness of its meaning. He really does have the right to reinterpret and reimagine and give new life to the covenant and to institute a new covenant. And this is a new covenant, brothers and sisters. It's not like the old covenant. There's a lot that could be said about the differences between the old and the new covenant. I know you're wishing I'd just hang out there a lot and get all theological, but I'm just going to say one thing and then move on thing that's really special about this new covenant is that the only people who are a part of it are the people who are covered by the blood of Jesus. So have you been covered by the blood of Jesus? 
Have you come to see yourself as broken? Have you come to see yourself as in need of being covered by the blood of Jesus? Or if you haven't, then you are not a part of this covenant. You are not a part of God's family. I don't care if you grew up in church. I don't care if you pray and read your Bible. I don't care if you give money away. God says that only those who repent of their sins, who see themselves as broken creatures and who turn to Christ and let His blood pay the price for their sins, only these people are the people who are a part of this covenant. And He's calling you to receive that even today. If you do, you become a part of His family, which leads us to point number two. Jesus is forming a family. If you'll remember, the Passover meal was celebrated with family. It was the family that had to cook the lamb and prepare the bread and eat with their clothes on and put the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And so the celebration of the Passover was always celebrated with family. But you'll notice that in this text, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Why isn't Jesus with Mary and Joseph and, and his brothers? Why aren't the disciples? Why isn't John Mark with his mother-in-law? Why isn't Peter with his wife and their family? Well, I think it's because Jesus is forming a new family. And he gathers these disciples and he says, this is the beginning of the new family of God. He's already kind of been touching on this theme throughout the, the book of Mark. If you can remember all the way back to chapter 3, we saw that Jesus' mother and his brothers came looking for him. And the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, your, your mom and your brothers, and they're here. They're, they, they're looking for you. And Jesus said, whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. As human beings, we're bound together in so many different ways. Our political affiliations, our shared experiences, our hobbies, our interests, our national identities, and most profoundly, our blood. But Jesus, he's been showing us that our blood is in fact not the thing that binds us most deeply. Our spirit-empowered obedience to God is what makes us a family. In this new family that Jesus is forming, our common blood is our union with Christ. If we partake of Christ's broken body and drink of his blood, we are a part of his family. The same spirit that lived in Christ that raised him from the grave and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, if that spirit of God lives in us, we are a part of the same family. The spirit of God is what binds us together in a way that is infinitely deeper than the sequence of our DNA. And that's pretty incredible because I think patience is exactly like me in every single way, all the way down to how much she loves meat. It's incredible. And yet, there is something deeper than that connection. I love you, baby. The family of God under the Old Covenant was the people of Israel, okay? An ethnic and political and spiritual people. But now under the New Covenant, the family of God looks entirely different. Your political affiliation to the nation of Israel, it's nullified. It doesn't exist anymore. Your physical relationship to Abraham doesn't matter at all. 
Praise God, because I don't think that there are many people in this room who are descended from Abraham. Now all that matters is that you belong to Christ. If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ for salvation, and if you follow him faithfully all the days of your life, you can know that you are a part of his family. This is a great comfort to someone like me who grew up without a family, who grew up in a broken home. If you come from a broken family, you should know that Jesus Christ doesn't just save people and then put them at a TV tray, you know, with a, you know, a hungry dinner that got microwaved just to sit and watch and experience life as a Christian by yourself. He invites you into the family table. He doesn't save Christians and then leave them to be solo. He connects them to the family. Not only does Jesus give us a better family than our broken families, but he also gives us a better family than our good families. It's so easy here in the Christian South to kind of not even realize that our family has become an idol in our life. You know, look at, look at little Johnny and little Susie and look how well behaved they are and they're in the honor roll and they're softball and this and that and you know, look how well you know, my wife is taking, look how obedient my kids are. I feel that way, especially as a pastor. But the family of God is better than even this earthly family. Your wife that you love so much, your husband that you care so deeply for, that's going to kind of be a non-factor in the new heavens and new earth. It's a blessing for a time here and now, and I'm sure that there's going to be some connection there in heaven, but ultimately the most significant thing about who you are is not that you're John's dad or Eric's mom. It's that you're a son of Jesus Christ. That is what your identity should be grounded in, a daughter of God. The most obvious way that we experience life as a part of God's family is in the life of the local church. We may fight with our brothers and sisters from time to time. That's going to happen. And sometimes life in the family is hard. But Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, has thrown the doors of his heavenly home wide open to us. Brothers and sisters of this congregation, if you look around you this morning and if you see another member of this church, that is your family member. They are as close to you in a very real way as almost anybody else. And we're not family based off of our likes or our preferences. We're family because Jesus has saved us. Not football, not economic status, not identity politics. We don't gather around those things. We gather around Jesus, around God our Father. So, how are you doing with your family? How are you treating your family? Are you showing up late and leaving early so that you can avoid your family? Are you gossiping about your family? Are you being willing to serve your family? Are you willing to be open to be served by your family? Do you threaten to abandon your family? like a husband ready to divorce his wife at any moment and he lets her know it? Or are you committed to this family in the same way that Jesus is committed to you? 
as beautiful as all this is, and as challenging as all this is, there's still something ominous about this meal that we haven't talked about yet. You see, there's somebody here at this meal who looks and acts in every way like a member of the family, but who isn't? That leads us to point number three. Jesus is betrayed. In last week's text, we saw that Judas went to the high priest to betray Jesus in verse 11. Look at verse 11 real quick. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And now Judas, after he's kind of already made the arrangement with the religious leaders, now he's just waiting for the opportunity to set up the sting. He's got to figure out a way to actually hand Jesus over to them. Jesus, making a very, very bold move, begins the celebration of the Passover meal by saying that there is a traitor in their midst. This seems like a less than positive way to start off the family celebration. You know, I mean, couldn't this have waited till after the meal, Jesus, and couldn't you have, like, done it in private so as not to cause a hubbub? As is so often the case in a fallen world, a meal that's supposed to be a celebration is tainted by sin. But even as he is being betrayed, Jesus is showing himself to be the Son of God. He knows all things, even the schemes of Judas's evil heart. He lets it be known that he knows. Now, earlier in the text, in a place that we haven't really talked much about, we saw that Jesus was arranging the Passover meal. And when he arranged the Passover meal, he said, you're going to go into the city and you're going to find a guy carrying water on his head and you'll follow him and that's where you're going to go set up the Passover meal. Uh, this, the reality of what happened there may not have hit you very hard, but it's incredible. I've, I've told you that there were probably upwards of two million people there in the city. So for Jesus to send his disciples out to go find one man in particular who would have a place for them, it's just an incredible picture of Jesus' omniscience. He knows what's going to happen before it even happens. But for the disciples, it wouldn't have been that surprising. They've seen this kind of thing from Jesus over and over and over again. When people have grumbled about Jesus in secret, he knows it. When people have grumbled against Jesus in their hearts, he knew that too. When they doubted Jesus in their hearts, he knew it. When they hated Jesus in their hearts, he knew it. And that's what makes Judas so foolish. Judas, you, brother of all people, should know better to think that you can get something past the Son of God. You have to get up very early in the morning to get something past Jesus. You should know that it's a futile attempt. The really incredible thing is that Jesus knew about Judas's betrayal before Judas was even born. That's what we see in verse 21. In verse 21 we read, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. He says, as it is written of him. And that's a reference to an Old Testament prophecy. 
about Jesus being betrayed. You see, Jesus knew long before even Judas knew, Jesus knew. He knew about the betrayal. But we also see that this doesn't in any way absolve Judas of guilt. Jesus says it would have been better for this man if he had not been born at all. So we see that God, God ordains this betrayal. He knows that it's coming. He's totally sovereign over it. And yet he still holds Judas responsible for the betrayal. And here we see our old friends, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, always in the Bible being held together. Sometimes we can't tell which one is winning. It oftentimes leaves us asking questions. It's a, it's a mystery. And there's certainly space for us to meditate on this mystery of how God can hold Judas responsible, and yet he knew about it before Judas was even born. There's a place for that. Maybe we'll talk about it at lunch after church, or maybe we'll talk about it again on Wednesday night. But rather than figuring out the depths of divine mystery and providence here, I think we would just do wise to focus on the way that the disciples respond to what Jesus says here. In verse 19 we read, They began to be sorrowful, and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? Is it me? Am I the one who's going to betray you? It seems that these disciples are willing to believe the worst about themselves. It seems that, that they recognize that they could very easily betray their master. And that seems wise considering their terrible track record as they've been following Jesus so far. Uh, every couple of months, and it's been all too frequent in the internet age, you hear about a pastor who has fallen, who has morally compromised himself and shipwrecked his ministry. When I was a, a younger man, I used to hear about these things and I would just get disgusted. You know, how could you? How could you do that to your wife? How could you do that to your church? How could you do that to that woman? And it is disgusting. But the more that I've walked with the Lord, the more of His holiness I've seen. And a funny thing happens when you stare into the holiness of God. You begin to see your own unholiness. When you see the righteousness of God, you begin to see your own unrighteousness. When you see the perfectly pure heart of God, you see how wretched your own heart is. And so now when I hear about a pastor falling, my immediate reaction isn't, how could you? It's more like, am I going to be the next one? It could be me. It could be me. And then I pray and I ask the Lord to protect me from my sin and from Satan who would love nothing more than to destroy this church by having me or one of these elders fall into sin and disqualify ourselves from ministry and totally undo all the work that we've done. And I thank the Lord for sustaining me and for keeping me by His grace. What kind of emotions do you experience when you see a Christian who falls into sin? Somebody who calls himself a brother or sister who begins to deny the deity of Christ or who goes off and lives in the world. 
Do you think that you're not capable of the same? You most certainly are. There's nobody sitting in this room right now who isn't capable of turning on Jesus Christ and abandoning the God who saved them. I hope you believe that about yourself. And if you do, it should change the way that you interact with people when they fall in sin. Galatians 6.1 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when you catch that brother, that sister in that sin, don't have the attitude of Peter, chest all poked out. I'm never going to betray you. Not me, not in a million years. I'd rather die. I'd rather have the attitude of, oh, yes, I've caught you in your sin, but it could very easily have been me. And then treat them like that's, like that's true. You know, it's possible that there's a Judas among us. Jesus handpicked his 12 disciples, and there was a Judas among them. We have 37 members of this church. It's possible. But rather than trying to figure out who, may, who that may be, I think we should all just assume the posture. We should assume the posture of the disciples. And we should just go, is it me? Am I the one? Is it Tate? Is it Chancellor? Is it Spencer? Is it Tammy? Am I the one who could turn away from Jesus Christ? You know, what I've found over the course of the years discipling Christians is that the people who are typically concerned that they might be the ones to turn away from Christ almost never do. The people who, after they learn about election, you know, and their minds get blown by that, the ones who worry whether or not they're elect, as if that's what God wants you to do, but they're, they're, they're not really ever the ones to walk away from Christ. The Christians who understand the sinful nature of their own heart and that understand the fact that they could very easily just go back into the world, they almost never do. Pastors who live with a low-grade sense of anxiety, recognizing that they could just, like that, disqualify themselves from the, the ministry, they almost never do. But the people who kind of just assume that they have it all together, the people who never say, is it me, is it, could I be the one? The ones who just think that they're rock solid and that they'd never drift, they're almost always the one to do it. In our introduction, we saw that a child at the Passover celebration would stand up and ask the head of the family, what makes this day different? And now as Christ the final Passover lamb has come. I stand before you, members of Sixth Avenue, and I ask you, what makes this day different? What makes Sunday different? Well, the answer to both of these questions is the same. We come together as a family to remember the Lord and His mighty power to save His people. And we worship Him as we wait for him to come and to take us all the way home. Sunday is no ordinary day. And I lament the fact that so many of us treat it like it's just another day to rest.
but so much more. In verse 26, we see that before the meal was over, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn. They would have sung one of the halal psalms, which was a psalm about deliverance. And so now, brothers and sisters, in light of our great salvation, in light of Christ, our Passover lamb, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed to save us and to bring us into his family, in light of that, we too will stand and sing a hymn. But first, let's pray. Father, your word is beyond... There's just no words, Lord, for how wise you are and how incredibly you demonstrate your character to us through your word. We could exhaust all language and vocabulary and we would still never be able to fully describe your love for us and how we have failed you so many times and how we have betrayed you and how we have been unfaithful to your covenant. But we praise you for giving us forgiveness through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now we continue to sing to you, God, who is worthy of all honor and all glory and all praise. Amen.